Awesome. How is everybody today? Doing all right? Okay. Let's take about 20 seconds, and um, I'm not commanding, I'm just inviting. Take a deep breath and let it out. Rest in the reality that God is present here, that he's moving and he's speaking, and that you can set your heart at rest in his presence because he's here out of love. Um, if by chance you take notes, you can write this down now because it, uh, the outline could get lost in the fervor of this morning's message. Basically talking about three correlations this morning, three co-relations. Um, the purity of God that's motivated by the fear of God. The power of God, the response to which is faith in the name of Jesus and the reality of persecution in the world, even in our lives, which uh, prompts in the true believer, in the follower of Jesus, faithfulness to God with joy. If you caught it, there's three P's and three F's. It's real handy for you. So <clears throat> my notes are always on the website. So if you want to get all the goodies, they're there. I know that I've told this story before, but I'll say it again because it, it sets up the message. Um, 1987, it's about 4 billion years ago, 1987, Jane and I went to our very first vineyard conference. I didn't know what the vineyard was. Uh, and we walked into, um, I think it was a high school auditorium or something in Cincinnati, Ohio, and a vineyard pastor named Blaine Cook was speaking about healing. And uh, he gave a message, I don't remember a word he said, it was probably awesome. There was some worship. I don't remember that either. I just remember at the end of the message, he said, okay, let's see what God wants to do. And he said, why don't we all just stand up? So we all stood up. Um, at this point, I was beginning to feel a little nervous. The only place in the Presbyterian church you ever stand up is when you are singing a hymn or leaving the building. <laughs> I wasn't sure what was going to happen next. And um, he, he said, Holy Spirit, come just like that. And some things started to happen in the room. There was people were making some noises. I, I don't remember those. I just remember activity, and I remember feeling in my spirit, I'm scared. This seems dangerous. This is not, you know, decently in an order. Something's not right. And so, no joke, I slipped out of my row, and I was along the, the left wall, and I just started slowly moving backwards like this. And... Um, I was standing there, I was maybe three-fourths of the way back against the wall, and the man who was sitting right in front of where I was, had I not left, um, leaned over holding his private area and screaming at the top of his lungs. And um, he did that for maybe a minute or so, and then there were a few people, um, strong men, they came in and they carried him out. Still in a crouched position, and he screamed the whole way out. And um, I was just planning my exit. I, this is, I'm telling you the truth. I just thought, bad, get out of here. And I think, you know, Jane's still sitting up there probably like this, you know. And I'm trying to figure out where am I going to go so cause I don't have to be here. And a man comes up to me, you know, prophetic as anyone. And he says, how are you doing? I said, not too good. 
He said, what's happening? I said, what about that guy? And the guy says exact words. I mean, I can just hear it. He says, that man was dealing with some sexual sin. And the Lord graciously gave him some pain in that area so that he could repent. And as we're talking, the guy walks back in, the crouchy guy, walks back in, takes up his position, and starts to worship the Lord. A couple of things happened for me in that time. Uh, One, the logical response was the fear of the Lord. It seemed logical. It was real. I was nervy. Um, Second, my faith was bolstered because Jesus was present in the room. I didn't like all the ways he was present, but he was present. And third, I thought to myself right there, I'm going to be faithful to God, (laughs) no matter what it takes. (laughs) We're in a series called The Mission of God. And in this series in the book of Acts, we're talking about the way that the early church, the disciples, proclaimed the testimony of Jesus and demonstrated the the testimony of Jesus. How they encountered the love and the power of God and how they gave it away to the world. How the early church continued the ministry of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to look through three sections uh, from Acts chapter 5. Tell me the last time you heard a message about Ananias and Sapphira. Probably not a whole lot of them out there. Welcome to the vineyard. I saw one former pastor raise his hand. Larry, way to go. You probably preached it. Adam spoke last week about the radical generosity of the early church. And I mean, I really enjoyed the message. It, It was a challenge to me. It was just straight from the word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that as we leave Acts chapter 4, the early church experience is just not all gifts and joy. There was some other stuff going on too. So if you have a Bible, open it or turn it on or flip in any way to Acts chapter 5. And I'm going to read um, this first section, Acts 5, 1 to 11. This is God's word to us this morning. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. And in the Greek it says, duh. (laughs) Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out 
also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Um, Adam mentioned the text last week, and if you remember, Adam said, it wasn't because they didn't give all the money away that God struck them dead. The money was theirs. They could have given what they wanted. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was what? You just called out. Pride. They listened to your messages. It's awesome. The sin was pride. The, The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they intended to look to people different than they actually were in reality. They wanted to appear different. They freely chose pride and appearance over humility and reality. They freely chose pride and appearance, what they looked like, over humility, true reality, and reality. Like, hey, this is just who I am and where I am. And God wasn't impressed. And so it's, the scripture says that the fear of God seized the whole church who heard, and everyone who heard about these events. I mean, just imagine you're in that scenario. I don't know if I want you to imagine it here. But imagine, you're, that we're, remember, we're in the New Testament here. We're not in the Old Testament. Imagine that. And you start to think, wait a minute, what kind of place is this? What kind of people are these? What kind of God is this? Can you just admit it messes with your theology right now while you're sitting here? It messes with mine. Keep thinking, wait a minute, wrong testament. No. People realizing this is not just about how things look, this is about how things are. How many grew up in a family where what was most important is how things look? And so what you had to do was shield from everyone, including yourself, how things really are. How many of you know the division that that creates in your... I mean, I know it all too well. It's, it's hard to live when appearance is more important than reality, when you know the reality deep within. Big takeaway from point one, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. It's dangerous. And for some reason... Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, you've not lied to men, even though it seems like that's exactly what they did. You've lied to God. How's that work? I don't know. It's just what it says in the Bible. But I think, to, to, make, to bring it to the, to, the, to the present here, I think it's about authenticity. I think it's about being real. I think it's about you being you through and through. It's about me being me and being okay with who I am at the moment, just, you know, uh, it wasn't just Popeye, it was the Apostle Paul who said, I am what I am. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, warts and all. Paul, you know Paul would say that because it's all through the scripture, his, wi- his willingness to recognize I'm just the least of these. It's about authenticity. There's no reason to pretend before man or God, when God sees all things. And there's every reason in the world to be. I mean, to be, to be and live in reality. One motivation, James 4.6. James 4.6 
says it in the Bible, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Ananias and Sapphira experienced the opposition of God. They just wanted the perception of themselves to be boosted just a bit, right? I mean, you put yourself in that scenario. You, our, our first thing is to say, I would never do that. And then the reality comes in and think, I do that every day in some way, shape, or form. It is a common temptation to, to men and women of every age to boost our appearance in the sight of other people just a bit, just a tad, just a We want to say, God, oh, it's nothing. Apparently, it's something. We know the temptation. And so I'll just say it straight. No manipulated perception of man is worth the opposition of God. No manipulated perception of man, however we might do it, is worth the opposition of God. And we all know it. We all know the temptation. And we all know the freedom of reality, the freedom of truth. God desires purity and truth and authenticity. And so the result of this event, for whatever reason God decided to do it, is that the fear of the Lord came upon the people of God. Remember Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom descended down upon the people of God at this moment in Acts chapter 5. And so the early church continued the ministry of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit by living out the purity of Jesus in the fear of the Lord. I mean, this recognition that God is almighty, he can, may do whatever he wants at any time, the fear of the Lord. And I'm not going to take a long time to talk about the fear of the Lord. There's lots to be read in the scripture and in other places, but this was really helpful for me just this week in my preparations. In the 16th century, Martin Luther was describing the fear of the Lord. And the way he helped people understand it was to distinguish between two types of fear. One he called servile fear, think servant or slave, servile fear, and one he called filial fear. Think uh, philia is the word for son in Latin. So think family or son. So the fear of the servant, the slave, the prisoner, the tortured, or the fear of the son who lives in a family context of love and security. And it it helped me to understand, to get a, a good grasp of the fear of the Lord. Servile fear is like a prisoner in a torture chamber before the tormentor, like the fear of what will happen if I do something wrong. And the fear is what? Punishment. That's one type of human fear. The fear of the Lord is different than than that. The fear of the Lord is more like filial fear, like the fear of a son or a daughter before a loving yet powerful and respected parent. The child respects and loves the father or the mother because they want to please them. I mean, can you you imagine a a two-year-old, I don't know, somewhere in there... There's some place when babies are small where they really want to please the parents, you know. You can see it in them. Sometimes it just the dastardly thing gets in there. But often it's just like, what could I do to make you happy? You've probably seen it in kids. You've probably felt it as a kid. Depending on the kind of family you lived in, it was either servile or filial. 
But for the people of God, our fear of God is like the fear of a child who just longs to bring pleasure to the parent, to the mother or the father, because this mother or father is the one that has provided for them an atmosphere of love of, and of security. It's not a fear of punishment. It is a fear of displeasure that would break some relationship between the dependent one and the utterly capable one, the parent. And so the early church lived in purity, the purity that Jesus gave to them by imputing his righteousness to them, but also in the context of the fear of the Lord. There's great safety in the fear of the Lord. Isn't that an odd thing to say? There's great safety in the fear of the Lord. True fear of the Lord will not keep us from God. It will draw us near to God. Doesn't that sound, there's a word where they don't go together. Odd? <laughs> An oxymoron. Thank you, John. But true fear of the Lord will not cause us to go back from God, but it'll cause us to draw near. Why? If we live in the fear of the Lord, there's nothing hidden. And so why would we be afraid to come to the one who knows us best? The one who knows you best loves you most, has forgiven you most. And so if you read through, I won't do it now, but read through Hebrews 9, 10, 11, 12, and you see this strange juxtaposition where the writer of Hebrews is saying, our God is a consuming fire. We come to a mountain of judgment. He's holy. He's amazing. Draw near to God with full assurance of faith. The fear of the Lord doesn't cause us to run away. It causes us to live out the purity of Jesus imputed to us in a place where, hey, nothing hidden. The safest place to be is in the nothing hidden place. Right before God, who knows you utterly and completely. The fear of the Lord motivates purity, the purity that actually every one of us truly desires. That's purity in the fear of the Lord. Let's move on. Acts chapter 5, 12 to 16. Verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them. And no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Isn't that odd? They were scared to come near them but more were added to the faith day after day. Man, I'd like to see in between those two verses what was going on. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. What the heck? Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So it, it wasn't just purity in their midst in the context of the fear of the Lord. It was the power of God in their midst in this early church, the power of God, power for healing, probably because, remember in Acts 4, the, 
They prayed, and the place where they prayed was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they boldly proclaimed. Adam was talking about last week, proclaimed and testified to the resurrection. So there was boldness. There was faith. There there was fear. I mean, dead people scare people in any context. It's just a scary thing when somebody dies like that. But God's at work, and the the mission of Jesus is continuing. And so people are laying sick people on the ground in the street so that when Peter walks by, his shadow will touch them, and the shadow of Peter will heal them. What do you do with that? Isn't it easy to say, you know, about somebody who has a healing ministry, I don't like their style. I don't like the way they do it. I think it's a little too flashy, you know? I don't think you should pray for a hanky and then give the hanky away. Personally, that's not my style. The shadow of Peter? Can God use any means at any time to do what God wants to do? He can because he's God. And we don't get to stand in the judgment place of God. You know, God, I'm not sure that shadow thing was a good idea. It creates some weird dynamic, you know? God's cares not at all about the dynamic that is being created. And every single one of them, evil spirits, sick people are getting healed. Every single one of them. Sounds like the ministry of Jesus, continued by the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. From 1987, flash forward in my life, seven years, and Jane and I are uh, in Evanston. I'm my last year of seminary. And um, January of 1994, renewal hit the Toronto Vineyard up in Toronto, Canada. And things started happening all over the world. Um, Randy Clark, who was kind of at the beginning of that, and Mike Bickle from the Kansas City Vineyard Church at that time, came to Evanston and they did a conference called Passion for Jesus in April of 1994. And Jane and I were at the conference with about 1,000 other people. And um, there was a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) The power of God was manifested in a way that I have never seen before and have never seen since. I won't go deeply into my own story, but uh, I think it was the Friday night meeting, worship, message, again, don't remember a single word, ministry time, don't remember anything except that at one point I had fallen to the ground We were in an auditorium, a high school auditorium. There were metal chairs, like auditorium chairs, bolted to the ground. And at some point in this encounter with God, I had a hand on chairs across an aisle. And for 45 minutes or an hour, people cast demons out of me. I was a Christian. I was about to finish seminary. I'd been a missionary. I don't know where the demons were hiding, but they were in there. And um, it's a long story. I won't go into it all. But demons were expelled from my person to the extent that when I walked out of the building that night, I could breathe more deeply than I'd ever remembered breathing. And there were some details, some things that Jane had to say and some things that God did. and, And I know it's wild, but the power of God was manifest in that room, and it changed the trajectory of my life. I did not walk in thinking, 
let's get rid of some demons tonight. I think I was looking for the whole laughing thing. <laughs> Maybe just a small fall down in the spirit. I mean, I think that's what was in my mind. And God said, no, it's cleanup time. Let's just say that after that conference at the Vineyard in Evanston, you didn't walk into the vineyard in an unaware state. And I mean this seriously. I can remember getting up on a Sunday morning, driving 45 minutes from our seminary place to the, to the church or wherever we were living at the time and thinking, we get to go to church. We got to go to church. We get to go to, oh my gosh. It was, it was literally, God's there, God's there. And it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. We would come in and worship and I would weep. And then the ministry would happen and there's this kind of anticipation of like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I know it's going to be God and therefore I know it's going to be good. And that type of fearful, loving expectancy, faith, you know, was a logical response to the power of God present in the people of God. We couldn't manufacture it. We couldn't say, do it again. We couldn't, there was no formula. There was just presence. There was a, you know, the very first Vineyard song I ever heard, and this is flashback to that 87 conference, was a song called, I Believe in Jesus. And I will not cause you to need a healing by singing it. But here's, here, here's what it says. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he died and rose again. I believe he paid for us all. Just a real nice evangelical song, right? And then the second part. I believe that he's here now, standing in our midst with the power to heal now and the grace to forgive. And even as I say the words, I get chills come down my body because it's the recognition that God's present, not because we prayed so hard, not because we fasted enough, not because we set the perfect atmosphere. God loves all that. But that's not why he's here. He's here because he's God. Because his nature is omnipresence. Because out of compassion for his people, he will never draw away from us, but only come near however scary and delightful and beautiful and nerve-wracking that might be because he's God. God can do anything. And I think it's a healthy fear and faith that says God may do anything. God may do anything. And the early church continued the mission of God in the context of that power of God. So how do we respond to at least two-thirds of this text? Filial fear, the loving, respectful fear of a son to a loving parent who brings security and love, who knows and has our very best in mind. And faith in the power of God. I mean, what I take from Acts uh, 5, 12 to 16 is, I mean, to me, the mandate is go for it. Go for it. Not so you can get, you know, on the front of, front of charisma that your shadow's healing people, but so that you get to cooperate with heaven. Go for it. Somebody's sick, pray for him. What might God do? Right there, right in your midst. He's here with the power to heal and the grace to forgive. 
response of the early church to this promise and the realization of power was faith in the name of Jesus. Purity and the fear of God, power and faith in the name of Jesus. And you might have been wishing that I'd run out of time before I got to the third P, persecution. It's a longer story. I'm not going to read it. You can, but I'll, I'll summarize it so we have context. You got Ananias and Sapphira. You got miracles, powers, demons flying all over the place, middle of Acts chapter 5, and at the end. What you have is the apostles boldly proclaiming the testimony of Jesus and demonstrating the kingdom with all kinds of wild stuff. Power. People's lives are being changed. And they're afraid to come near, but they've got to come near because they've never experienced anything so awesome as the presence of God. And so a group of leaders got jealous and they jailed the apostles and then, you know, score one for the bad guys. And then an angel comes, opens up the prison doors and lets the apostles out, score one for the angelic host. The angel says to the apostles, go to the temple courts, and this is the command, tell about this new life. So they're being told not to preach doctrine, but to basically give their testimony. Go back, I'm freeing you from prison, go back and tell about this new life. What's life like under King Jesus? And so they go and they do it. And the religious and the political leaders um, find that the jail is empty, They're a little bit distressed by that. So they go back out. They find the apostles again. They question them. What the heck do you think you're doing? And Peter says for all the apostles, I mean, he basically says, whatever you think, whatever, but we have to obey God, not man. So you can do whatever you want. We're going to do what Jesus says, which is continue the mission. Proclamation, demonstration. So Peter just gives it to him straight. Let me read Acts 5, 31 to 33. This is Peter speaking to the people who've already imprisoned him twice. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. How to win friends and influence people. (laughs) Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. It's a good message, Peter. And then the Bible says, when they heard this, the the high council was furious and decided to kill them. Fortunately, Gamaliel a teacher of the law who, if you just think through your Acts, you know, chronology, is presently tutoring who do, a person who doesn't yet know he's the Apostle Paul. Gamaliel, tutoring Paul, who's, you know, and you know it's going to happen to Paul in a couple of chapters. Gamaliel says, hold on, everyone. You know, if this is not of God, it's just going to die down. Don't mess with it. If this is of God... Do you really want to mess with it? <laughs> this is what he says. If it's God, you can't stop it. But if it's God, you don't want to stop it. If it's not God, it's already stopped. So, so you know, the, the religious leaders, well, here's what it says, Acts 540. 
His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged just for funsies. Doesn't say funsies, but had them flogged. Just like, okay, we're not going to do anything, but here's a good beating. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And this is what the Bible says in the, you know, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their suffering, in the, in the midst of real life in the first century, and the apostles left, here's the word, rejoicing. Rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The apostles left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's just awesome and so convicting when we think about our lives. The Holy Spirit's present. Why does the Holy Spirit allow persecution? I do not have an answer to that question. I just have more questions. The Holy Spirit's here and moving. Why persecution of the people who are the good guys? Angels are involved and can let these people out of prison, but not keep them from being taken again and flogged? Peter Peter experiences the power of his shadow healing people and setting people free from demons, but not the power to remain unharmed in his physical body while he's proclaiming the gospel, what God told him to do? The Holy Spirit's present, and I'm not going to say couldn't, but didn't keep them from persecution. You know what they said to Jesus on the cross? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Isn't that an odd thing? And yet on the cross, there was a further deeper, more mysterious, eternal purpose for the suffering. A a greater reason for the the physical suffering. I want to be real careful. I just want to ask the question, is it possible that our perspective on suffering needs some eternal adjustment? Is it possible that the way we look at challenge, difficulty, persecution, suffering of any kind in a way that limits the grand scope of God's sovereign care? Do we just need a little attitude adjustment? Um, I've just recently been rereading a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, and it's an allegory. Read it for fun. It's, it's, a, it's about heaven and, and perspective from heaven on life, but it's in an allegory, so you know, you, you get to sort of understand. And I'll just give you this one piece where a mentor of the man having this dream is speaking about suffering and heaven and trying to explain from an eternal perspective what it might look like. And so I'll just read it. He says, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That's what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering No future bliss can make up for it. You know, some problem, nothing I could ever have in the future would make up for how horrible this is. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn 
even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. Stay with me. The good man's past begins to change so so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why the blessed, in other words, those in heaven, the blessed will say, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell and both will speak truly. Do you ever hear the testimony of someone in Eastern Europe before the wall came down or in the Middle East or in China talk about their time of imprisonment? And you hear them or you read about them and they're like, this cell was like a, a, a monastery chapel because I was so near to God. And you go, what? How could we understand that without having that experience? And I can't say why we experience persecution, just that the reality and the promise is ours. For 2 Timothy 3.12, all who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. It's, it's a reality. We don't get to escape it. But the attitude of the apostles, after being released from prison by the angel, taken in again, threatened and flogged, rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Their response to persecution and to suffering was joy. I I mean, I'd like to say, and here's how it works. I don't know. We're commanded to rejoice. We're empowered to rejoice. It's a choice to rejoice. There's power from heaven to choose it in the midst of difficulty. We just know that the apostles in the midst of that continued in obedience and they were faithful to God all the more. It's interesting that it doesn't say anywhere in Acts 5. um, And then one apostle said, maybe this is God telling us to stop. It doesn't even indicate that at any point, I'm just saying from the text, it doesn't indicate at any point they prayed against persecution as the work of the enemy. I'm not trying to make an argument from absence. We don't get to do that. But the response of the apostles was not to condemn those condemning them or even to pray against them, but to continue to proclaim Christ, to tell the story about this new life with joy. That's the example of the early church. That's how they continued the mission of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how they proclaimed and demonstrated the kingdom of God. It's how they encountered God's love even in the midst of straining for purity and the power of God in strange ways and persecution from enemies. Encountering the love and the power of God and being willing and faithful with joy to give it away to the world. The apostles were not known for what they opposed. 
they were known only for what they affirmed. And I think that's a word for us. They weren't known for what they opposed. They were known for what they affirmed. And they, and you know, John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, always used to say, <laughs> I never met him, so let, I don't want you to think like, oh, Randy was best friends with John Wimber. No, I saw him once. <laughs> Nevertheless, he used to say, you don't fight the devil by yelling at the devil. You fight the devil by doing the works of the kingdom. Because it's just what you see in the New Testament record over and over again. The works of the kingdom. Purity and the fear of God. Faith in the name of Jesus, even because there's power to, to be released. And even when persecution comes, faithfulness to God with joy. Uh, Amy, do you want to come play? And Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray for us and then I ask the ministry team to come forward. So at least a couple of ministry team members in the front. And I want to I give you an invitation. I want to give God an invitation. Does God need our invitation? I don't know. We want to agree with heaven. The Holy Spirit is present. And the Holy Spirit loves his church and wants purity and wants to release power and wants to release faithfulness even in the midst of persecution. So I'm just going to ask you, if, if there's any place uh, of that message or anything that God's been speaking to you, I mean, I can see some of you right now, God's speaking. Tears usually say God's doing something. If God's saying something, I would ask you to be bold and step right now out, out into the aisle and come down and let somebody pray for you. If you just want to be before God and you're not ready for humans, you can kneel right here in the front. I'm going to pray. We're going to wait and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do and say in our midst. God, thank you for the word and the activity of the Holy Spirit preserved for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you're present now. Would you come now in your manifest presence? touch your people. some physical manifestations in your body. You might have a rapid heartbeat. You might feel tingling in your hands, even around your lips. If, if that describes any of you, I think it's just a loving hint from God that he's doing something. I'd ask you to come forward and let us pray for you. So release the ministry team. If God highlights anyone to you that you think you should go and pray for, just step on out and ask for permission to pray.
Some of you this morning, you know you have a call um, to evangelism. You just know it. I mean, what's stirred in you this morning is I, I want to see the power of God manifest. And um, if that's you, would you raise your hand? You're feeling that? So where there are hands raised, if some of you could gather around and pray for those. I saw three here. There may be more. Keep your hand raised in the back. Nate, gather around and bless what God is doing. If someone could come right here and pray for this woman here. Um, do you guys want to turn around? God, I ask now in the name of Jesus, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, come upon these evangelists. We ask, Lord, for a filling of the Holy Spirit, a new filling of the Holy Spirit for them, a righteous, perceptible filling of the Holy Spirit for them. The Lord says to you, evangelist, this morning, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you to proclaim good news to the poor. Could we have a few more ministry team members? If you're on the ministry team, could you could you come forward here just in the middle because we have a few more people that want to be prayed for. Thanks. We have some more time. We're going to wait in this... Uh, atmosphere of uh, faith and in ministry if, if you want anything from God if you want and someone to pray for you come forward if you want to go get your kids and come back in and have someone pray for your kids we'll do that it may be that uh, as we're waiting here the Lord says something to you about you share it with someone so they can pray for you anyone else uh, sense a, a word from God for us to, in terms of ministry or a specific word for someone, uh, feel free to come forward. I'll get you a microphone. A couple more ministry team members, if we could, up here. If, if you're not experiencing something of God, then come and be a, a, a giver aware. If you've been an encounterer, there's something rising in your heart and it's like, God, I want, I want, I want, I don't know what I want, but I want you. Would you just open your hands? If the cry of your heart is, God, I want what Nancy was singing, you know, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know you more. God, I ask for those whose heart's desire is a deeper capacity to know you. I pray now in the name of Jesus that you'd release it. Jen, a deeper capacity to know Jesus than you've ever known even through the fellowship of his sufferings to know the power of the resurrection for you, Jen.
We're going to continue to just wait on the Holy Spirit. And so if you, if you are ready to go, you are free to go. You are free to stay. Whether you go or stay, go or stay in the purity of Jesus, in the power of God, and with faithfulness and joy.